I'm Jorge Salazar with the Texas Advanced Computing Center. Scientists have used supercomputers to engineer an enzyme that breaks down plastic. It's called polyethylene terephthalate, or PET, and it's used to make things like carpets and bottles for soda and water. This plastic pollutes the soil and the oceans. The scientists say it's a first step toward recycling PET and other plastics into commercially valuable materials at industrial scale. They published their results March of 2018 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The researchers took advantage for the study of computational resources of EXCEED, the Extreme Science and Engineering Discovery Environment, funded by the National Science Foundation. They used the Stampede 2 supercomputer at the Texas Advanced Computing Center, and they used the Comet supercomputer at the San Diego Supercomputer Center. These systems help them simulate the interactions of the plastic-degrading enzyme with PET. On the line to talk about their study are co-authors Greg Beckham and Lee Woodcock. Greg Beckham is a senior research fellow and group leader at the U.S. National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Lee Woodcock is an associate professor of chemistry at the University of South Florida. Drs. Beckham and Woodcock, welcome to the podcast. Great, thank you. Excellent, thank you for having us. What are the main findings of your study published in April of 2018 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that used computer simulations to help engineer an enzyme that eats plastic, the kind that's found in water bottles and all kinds of other things? This is Greg. I'll start out on this question. The main findings of our study that was published in PNAS were uh, essentially we wanted to investigate the molecular structure of an enzyme that was shown in a very high-profile paper published from Japan in 2016 in Science Magazine. Uh, we wanted to investigate the molecular structure of, the, of this enzyme that they discovered in, in the soil outside of a Japanese polyethylene terephthalate, or PET, recycling plant that was essentially able to break down this recalcitrant plastic PET into its constituent building blocks. And using experimental methods such as X-ray crystallography at the Diamond Light Source in the UK, our colleagues at the University of Portsmouth solved a high-resolution crystal structure of this enzyme, which is called PETase, or PETase. And then we used computer simulations to understand how a ligand, a polymeric ligand like PET, would be able to bind to the enzyme. We also did experimental work to show that, indeed, the PETase can break down water bottles or you know, soda bottles, as well as other industrially relevant PET films, as well as another plastic polyethylene furanoate. I think that sums it up pretty well about the major findings. The one thing that I would add would be that after doing all that and learning a lot about how the enzyme was able to be active against PET and PEF polymers, we then tried to understand about the evolution of it and looked at a very close neighbor to it, a family of cutenases, and then made the hypothesis that, hey, if we make this look more like a cutenase, which is less effective at breaking down PET, then we should make the enzyme worse. And in fact, we actually ended up making the enzyme better by doing that. Why did that happen? What, it, sounds, it sounds kind of surprising. It was incredibly surprising to us. As Lee was mentioning, we thought we were going to take the enzyme backwards in evolutionary time where it was more evolved, we thought, or we originally hypothesized based on the structure, to degrade cutin, which is the waxy substance on the surface of plants. When we made it more cutinase-like, the enzyme got better. And that's actually one of the key aspects of where computation came in, because it allowed us to essentially predict or suggest that aromatic-aromatic interactions in the enzyme with the aromatic polyester, PET, could potentially be responsible for its improved activity. But it was quite a surprise to us. Would you speak a little bit to the motivation behind looking into these enzymes like PET-ACE. There are scientists all over the world tackling this problem. Um, what's the motivation? That's a great question. This is Greg again. 
We produce about 311 million tons of plastic per year worldwide, and about 8 million tons of that ends up into the ocean, which is uh, about a dump truck of plastics per minute going into the ocean. Moreover, these plastics will last somewhere between 500 to you know 1,000 years, or at least are predicted to do so. And so we're creating an enormous pollution problem in terms of marine and aquatic and natural and, and sort of more recently been discovered in, in more terrestrial environments as well in the soil with microplastics and all kinds of plastic components that in many cases we only use for an hour or for a few minutes in some cases even that you know are designed to last forever. But certainly when they get out into the, into the biosphere, they cause enormous pollution problems. PET in particular is an exemplary plastic. It's the third or fourth biggest produced plastic in the world today. 30% of it goes into bottles for single-use beverages. 60% of it goes into carpets, which are essentially also not recycled today at all. When this stuff ends up in the biosphere, we don't know how organisms and microbes are responding to this in terms of bacteria or fungi being able to break it down. And we need to know what the fate of this stuff is going to be when it gets out into the biosphere. So that's our primary motivation for studying PETAs from an ecological perspective. The other thing, too, and the reason we're, we're quite interested in this enzyme is if we're able to use biology to use an enzyme or a microbe to break down PET, then we can use all the tools and tricks of synthetic biology to understand and perhaps at the industrial scale be able to recycle uh, PET materials into more valuable materials that will last much longer, say, than single-use water models. And so that kind of gets to this concept of upcycling plastics. Can we use a biological solution at the industrial scale to convert PET into something that's even more valuable than PET itself as a recycling strategy? You know, that was a question I had about the life cycle. What is the PET being broken down into? Yeah, that's a great question. This is Greg again. I'll take that one as well. In the organism that, that was discovered in Japan, it secretes two enzymes, and those eventually will break down polyethylene terephthalate, PET, into its two component building blocks. One is terephthalic acid, and the other is ethylene glycol. Ethylene glycol is the substance that's used in, for example, de-icing fluid that's put onto airplanes in cold climates before takeoff. It's also used in antifreeze. Terephthalic acid is used primarily in PET. It's an aromatic monomer that's produced from paraxylene at a very large commodity industrial scales. Would you please walk us through some of the, the basic steps of the experiment? The very first thing that we did was we cloned the enzyme pedase into E. coli. We expressed and purified that from an E. coli expression system. And then from there, what we were able to do is, through a lot of painstaking work at the University of Portsmouth in the UK, they found conditions wherein pedase was able to crystallize. And so once we had large crystals of the pedase enzyme, we took that to the diamond light source in the UK, uh, which is outside of Oxford. And then we used the synchrotron light source there in the, at Diamond uh, to solve a very high-resolution crystal structure of PETACE. From there, what we did was we used computational modeling to predict how a PET ligand would bind to the crystal structure of PETACE that we had solved. And from there, we noticed that when we compared those to cutinases, we noticed two big differences. And we essentially went back and redid exactly what I just said. We made a mutant, which had two modifications to take it back towards a cutinase. And what this allowed us to do was then again express it, purify it, and so we could take the wild-type enzyme as well as this double mutant enzyme and put them side by side and measure how good they were at breaking down PET. And that's where the exciting finding came in, that we actually had something that was a little bit better than the wild-type. Would you speak to what the computational challenges are that you faced in studying how the PET-ACE enzyme binds with the PET plastic? Yeah, this is Lee. I can take that. The first challenge that we ran into was the fact that 
even though the crystal structure that was able to be produced by our collaborators in the UK was very um, was very high resolution and very precise, unfortunately, it did not have a substrate bound. There was no PET monomer or dimer or polymer unit able to be resolved there interacting with the pedase. So the first question that we came about is, okay, well, then how does this actually interact? Right? What does this interaction look like on a molecular scale? So the initial challenge was trying to figure out how to model the binding of a polymeric chain, which we ended up eventually cutting down to a tetramer to model, is modeling how that actually binds and interacts with the pedase. What gave you the biggest headaches in trying to do this modeling? The big challenge is when you look at something binding, especially a polymer like this, um, you never know if you have a crystal structure with nothing bound, you never know what the large scale structural changes of the enzyme are going to be as these two things interact. So having access to exceed resources really opens up the possibility of being able to model and be able to study what type of large scale conformational or even local small structural changes occur as a function of both binding to the substrate, right? And additionally, what are the structural changes, the large scale or local small scale structural changes that occur in the enzyme after we make the mutations? Because that was a big part of what we were looking at was we make the mutations, we see experimentally that the activity of this new enzyme is improved over the wild type, but really trying to understand that on an atomic level and then rationalize that in terms of, okay, is it just better binding? Is it some type of better reactivity? Is, are these coupled to changes in the protein structure that experimentally have yet to be resolved? Would you speak to the resources that you used with Exceed, the extreme science and engineering discovery environment in overcoming some of these challenges? Absolutely. And I'll ask Greg to jump in here as well, because he has knowledge about some of this for some of his people we're using that I just want to make sure that I'm getting right. In terms of the sites for this, I believe we predominantly use TAC and SDSC. Is that correct, Greg? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And in terms of software and support, a lot of the long timescale simulations that we were looking at to understand how the protein changes were done with NAMD. Uh, in the CHARM force field. And then we also used the CHARM program itself with the CHARM force field to look at some of these induced fit binding effects, at least on exceed resources. We used a couple of other pieces of software locally. As far as like the supercomputers go, um, Stampede just recently upgraded to Stampede 2. Did you use the Stampede 1 system or was it the Stampede 2 system as far as TAC goes? Greg, do you recall this? I'm pretty sure it was Stampede 2. I'm pretty sure we used Stampede 2, and it may have even been a little bit of both because there was a, a yeah. pretty small delta T or delta time in there when they went from Stampede 1 to Stampede 2. How was that experience um, um, in using Stampede 2 for this research, doing molecular dynamics with the charm and the and, and NAMD? Greg, do you so, want to answer this? Yeah, you bet. So I'll be a little broader than just this research. And so we have a large allocation on Stampede 2 that includes using... Uh, NAMD. Also, we do a lot of periodic density functional theory calculations in VASP, as well as gas phase density functional theory calculations in Gaussian and a few other codes. And our experience to date on Stampede 2 has been absolutely wonderful. It's uh, for all the codes that we put on there and use so far, it has been, or that we're already on there that we're taking advantage of, uh, it has been an absolute uh, godsend of a machine. Uh, we get through the queues quickly. We're producing a lot of great science uh, across the spectrum of what our groups are collectively doing together using Stampede 2 right now. 
and certainly for the research on the plastics degrading enzyme, we used it for the paper that's already published, and we're using it for manuscripts and studies going forward on the same topic. And, and what about um, SDSC? Uh, uh, I believe that yeah, they, they have the the comet system um, available for scientists. How, how did that? Would you like to speak to that? How did that go? Yeah, I can, oh. I can speak to that. So I mean, at least the one nice thing about comet is that you have um, for jobs that you don't that you need to get through in a high throughput fashion that don't necessarily need the infrastructure that TAC has. SDSC has a shared queue, which allows you to submit much smaller jobs, but do it in a very high throughput fashion as they can share cores on the on the nodes at Comet. So this is particularly helpful if you have, again, if you have lots of small jobs that you need to get through in a high throughput fashion, which was definitely um, were things that we were doing as part of this work. On the topic of uh, using computation to enable scientific discoveries, what are your thoughts? I can give my thoughts, and I'm sure Greg has thoughts of his own on this, but I'll start by saying that I think this is essential, right? I think the days of experimental science generating the top-level results without support from computation and modeling and theory are really coming to a close. Experimentalists and computational scientists are working hand-in-hand ever more frequently, and without access to resources like this, this would really take us a step back or multiple steps back in producing the highest level of science and really being able to address the world's most challenging problems, which is what we did in this particular study, you know, again, done by partnering with top level experimental groups like our collaborators in the UK and with us here in the US. How does this research that you've been doing uh, with these enzymes, um, how does this research relate to ordinary people, to non-scientists? Yeah, so this is Greg. I'll take this question. So um, we interact with and touch plastics and interact with them and use them for our daily lives every minute of every day. It's a, a fun experiment for people to do. If you take a notebook with you and write down every time you touch plastic during the day, uh, you will become tired of writing very quickly. It's something that uh, it's an essential material for life in the modern world and more so becoming in the developing world as well. And so understanding how nature is responding to this material that we use, understanding how we can better design processes to recycle it and reclaim it such that it doesn't become a pollution problem is something that, um, you know, you don't need to be a scientist or an engineer to know is a, a dire global problem. And it's something that we have to come up with solutions for. What's the next step in this research? Yeah, so we're taking several next steps along this research trajectory. We're looking at the tip of the iceberg here in terms of understanding how this enzyme has evolved. And so, you know, we have massive genomics and metagenomics databases out there that have putative enzymes in them that can degrade these plastics. We have many, many tens of thousands of them likely out there that can do this. But in terms of using structure and computationally guided selection of those enzymes, that's a very critical next step. We need to be able to sift through tens of thousands of sequences and figure out what are the best enzymes to be able to degrade PET in here without us having to go and experimentally test 10 or 50,000 enzymes, which would be exorbitantly expensive and take an incredible amount of time. The other thing, too, that we're interested in, if we're able to do this at much higher temperature, that would accelerate the rate of degradation of PET and get us into likely realms that could be industrially relevant in terms of using an enzyme solution or a microbial solution to degrade PET and then convert that into higher value materials, which could incentivize higher rates of reclamation, especially in the developing world where lots of plastic waste goes into the ocean. Uh, and then uh, thirdly, we're also looking into 
attempting to get different structures of different PET degrading enzymes in coordination with ligands, such as what we did computationally in the current paper, and ask what other kinds of substrates, what other kinds of man-made plastics can these enzymes break down, perhaps that haven't been tested yet. So one of the things that we're doing kind of, this is in in conjunction with this work very much, but uh, along a separate line, is that from a computational standpoint, which is really kind of fundamental, we assume that the, our modeling techniques, you know, mainly I'm, I'm thinking of force fields here, are up to the challenge to be able to model things like plastic because these are not native materials. Many of them don't look very drug-like, which is where so much of the current force fields for modeling these have been built towards is to make sure they can model drug-like things. These don't look very drug-like. So we're stuck in this realm to where we ha- if we really want to model these polymers and learn about how they interact with enzymes and break down, but yet the, uh, the force fields for these, many of them are still very questionable. I'm also working with um, other colleagues at NREL to work on making sure that we can improve the force fields in a very rapid fashion so that if somebody comes in and says, oh, okay, we need to look at uh, this next thing, we got to look at this polymer next, is that we, can, we know that we have confidence in the fact that we can put together a modeling strategy in a very short amount of time to get that kind of quick turnaround that Greg was talking about when we have to model thousands and thousands of these. What's the most important thing that you want the public to know about this study of a plastic-eating enzyme? This is Lee. Um, So I think the most important thing that came out of this study is that, number one, there is an enzyme, which actually came from the Japanese study in 2016, that there is an enzyme exists that can break down common plastics, turn them back into their source materials, and really make uh, reuse available. Number two thing is that we're working, there, there are a lot of scientists out there working on improving that and getting that to the point where we, that can be used at the industrial scale, right? So we go from a place where plastics are very, very hard to recycle to a place where we use nature and millions of years of evolution to direct things in a way that make plastic very, very easy to recycle, right? We're taking these first steps along this path, but it's important to understand where we're going with this is that we need to make plastics extremely easy to recycle. And as Greg said, not recycle, upcycle, so that you can take them, regenerate the source material and make something just as valuable, if not more valuable. There has been a lot of press on this story. Are there some things that the press didn't get right about it? This is Lee. I was going to say the one thing that I think the press, and I'm not going to say they got it wrong, but I think there was an assumption coming in very interesting because a question that I think a number of us kept getting asked was, you know, what's the what's the prospects of taking this and dumping this stuff in the ocean and taking care of the plastic problem that's actually already existing in the ocean? And that was something that we we've most certainly never talked about and don't and you know and don't foresee happening anytime in the any close to near future. So dumping more stuff into the ocean to fix the problem in the ocean is probably not this is probably not the solution. Um, and I think that was a, an assumption that um, a lot of the press were hoping we could answer, uh, yes, we're going to dump this in the ocean. All the problems are going to go away. That echoes almost exactly what I was going to say. This is not a solution right now for plastics problems in the ocean. Hopefully one day it can be a, a solution to help keep more plastics out of the ocean and likely, I mean, these enzymes are in the ocean right now, and so they are breaking PET down, albeit quite slowly, likely in the complex and very competitive environment that is uh, sort of the microbial communities around these plastic uh, garbage patches and things like this. You've been listening to Greg Beckham of the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. 
and Lee Woodcock of the University of South Florida. For the Texas Advanced Computing Center, I'm Jorge Salazar.